2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier this year, we debuted our Pandemic Book Club to find out what you've read over the last several months during quarantine. Today, we focus on authors with ties to Connecticut or who've written about our state. Coming up, we hear from some of the finalists for the 2020 Connecticut Book Awards. You can learn more at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Now, do you like nonfiction or fiction, poetry or memoirs? Bill tweeted at us that how can I pick just one great book? Here are three. Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, Transcendent Kingdom by Ya Jossi, Free Food for Millionaires by Min Jin Lee. You can also tweet at us at where we live or share a comment on our Facebook page. Now, have you read a Connecticut author you'd recommend? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Now, the Connecticut Book Awards is given out by the Connecticut Center for the Book. Its director joins us now on Zoom. Lisa Comstock, welcome to the show. Thank you.
0: Pleased to be here.
2: So tell us about Connecticut Center for the Book, and when did you start giving out these awards?
0: Connecticut Center for the Book... Is the affiliate uh, in Connecticut with the Library of Congress? So every state has a center for the book, and every territory as well. And uh, we are housed with Connecticut Humanities. So that's where where Connecticut or uh, the center for the book lives is with Connecticut Humanities. And that that's true around a lot of the country. Uh, the book awards it used to live with uh, Hartford Public Library many years ago. Um, and there were book awards given at that time, and then there was a hiatus, and we came back with them in 2017 um, as a way to promote Connecticut-based authors and Connecticut-based themes and places and that kind of thing. That's how it's revived itself. Mm
2: -hmm. I understand the awards recognize and honor authors and illustrators who've created the best books in or about our state. There are five categories, and, and how many finalists do you choose for each category?
0: It ranges from three to five. And the so it's fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and young readers. And then young readers is divided into three categories, subcategories, which would be again fiction, nonfiction, and picture books. So it could range from three to five finalists in each of those categories. The final, final category, if you will, is the Spirit of Connecticut Awards, which honors Bruce Fraser, who was a. Uh, former director uh, who passed away about ten years ago now, but he had such a um, attention to Connecticut's sense of place that that's sort of what that that um, award focuses on. Mm.
2: We often hear from listeners on our show about uh, authors that they enjoy, and so how does the community get involved in not these nominations, Lisa?
0: Well, I make the call out. It goes out through everywhere we can find to make the call um, through um, press releases that go to the paper and what have you and advertisements and what have you. And then the books uh, come in. They are submitted sometimes by the author, sometimes by the publisher. We don't get as many nominations as I uh, would like to see, actually, just coming from the public that are coming in. Uh, submissions are open usually through january early january through about mid-april we accept them this year was a little bit uh, we still accepted them through uh, mid-april um, and the books then get shipped to us and then distributed to the judges you know in may or so we extended that a little bit this year just due to the circumstances um and they get distributed to the judges in each category for reading throughout the summer and uh, then we start narrowing down the finalists in about August or so. Um, and usually we get that kind of narrowed down by the end of August, beginning of September. Mm.
2: Now this year, like uh, no other, and so you're going to have a virtual uh, yeah. ceremony or event to announce the winners. Tell us about that, Lisa.
0: Yes, it's a, it, it is a challenge. We're, uh, you know, we're kind of learning as we go, as many are, I'm sure. Um, I think we're it'll be Um, some live pieces interspersed with a lot of uh, pre-recorded pieces just to sort of make it flow along easily. Um, And we're, we're hoping to have, or not hoping, we are going to have sound bites or readings from all of the finalists books. Um, If they are the children's books, it'll be more like book trailers. So you'll get a kind of a flavor or a sense of each one of these books that have and uh, that are uh, finalists in each of the categories. And it's going to be, uh, it'll be interesting. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. I, it'll, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's a whole different world.
2: You're hearing Lisa Comstock here on Where We Live as we learn about the 2020 Connecticut Book Awards. She's director of the Connecticut Center for the Book. Now, one of the authors nominated is Anne Perkins, who wrote Yale Needs Women. and joins us now on Zoom. and welcome to our show, and congratulations on your nomination. Thanks so much, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Yale Needs Women tells the story of Yale's first class of women students. How did you decide you were going to write about this, Anne?
3: So, I went to Yale too. I arrived as a student eight years after those first women. Uh, and I didn't hear anything about them when I was a student then. No one ever really talked about it. So, I got curious about them about eight years ago and started researching it and was shocked to find that of all the histories written about Yale and coeducation in this era, which was just 50 years ago. No one had included the voices of women. And so I decided I was going to change that. I quit my job to write this book. I, and it was really one of the best decisions I ever made.
2: So women co-eds were first admitted back in 1969. This was a, a tumultuous time. What was the catalyst? Because Gail wasn't the only one admitting women at the time.
3: Yeah, so by, at this point in our history, the public universities had long been co-ed with the exception of Rutgers and UVA. The Historically, black colleges had long been UVA, but part of, uh, co-ed, but part of the brand of the top schools, the, Ivy League and uh, the uh, many of the other top schools in this country was that they didn't let women in. Mm. Um, but what happened at Yale is they started to see that students were turning Yale down to go to Harvard, an increasing number. And when they asked those students why, what they said was, well, at Harvard, I can go on a date with the girl sitting in class next to me from Radcliffe or just drive 20 minutes to West um, to Wellesley, but at Yale I have to drive two hours to get to Holyoke or Smith. And when Princeton, which was also all male, started making serious noises about going co-ed, Yale jumped and made the announcement that it would admit women and was such a big news story that the New York Times played it right on the front page. Mm-hmm. I'd love
2: to hear more about the research that you did, and to find uh, this first class of women uh, at Yale. How did you find them? And tell us a, uh, some anecdotes from some of the women you spoke with.
3: Sure. Um, you know, so I started as any good historian does in the Yale archives and um, spent many, many hours there. but found that the voices captured there were primarily of men, and so if I wanted to tell this story from the perspective of the women who lived it, I would need to do my own um, interviews so I got training in oral history and i um, of those first women, I looked specifically for women who um, I would say were more at the margins of yale women who women of color, women who had been activists women or women who had been leaders in for example, changing Yale's uh, rule that only men could play varsity sports. So one of those women uh, was Lori Mifflin. And what I ended up doing because I wanted to write a book that my daughter would actually want to read. And so I followed five of those women through those first years of co-education at Yale. Uh, as, and uh, so Lori Mifflin, for example, she's a Philadelphia athlete. She shows up at Yale with her field hockey stick and finds out, that the only sports women can play are uh, synchronized swimming and take ballet classes. (laughs) They don't have any team sports for Yale. And so she and her friends uh, send letters to nearby colleges announcing that Yale has a women's field hockey team and would they like to play Yale? And that's how the team started. There's another of these first women uh, who came to Yale as a trombone player and wanted to start an all women's rock band. And darn if she didn't do it. Uh, And that again, that was something that women just weren't allowed to do back then. Mm -hmm.
2: When we think about this, it's not just a Yale story, but a Connecticut story. Um, These women in that first class, I believe 63 of them came from
3: Connecticut high schools. That is true. And so you have to realize what a big, big deal that Mm -hmm. was. I mean, so this is a story that's on the front page of the New York Times. Yale, which had been all male for 268 years, is going co-ed. And then the New York Times, right before that first group of women was accepted, ran a huge spread in the Sunday Times magazine describing some of the women who had applied. And they called them superwomen. And so when, you know, the girl from the high school in Willimantic or Danbury or Hamden or North Haven got accepted at Yale, it was a victory for the entire town to have one of their women represented among this first group of superwomen at Yale. So it really is a Connecticut story as well. And then, of course, Yale wasn't the only men-only school in Connecticut at that time. Before 1969, women weren't allowed at Trinity, at Wesleyan, at the Coast Guard Academy, at Fairfield University. And so all of them went co-ed right in this era as well. Mm.
2: And what was it like for them to be in in the classroom that first year? Uh, You know, some of the uh, sexist uh, attitudes with women and being in the class with men, what were they up against? What was that like?
3: Well, you know, we think of co-ed now, and we picture 50-50, right? Mm. But Yale wanted to admit as few women as possible. So it put in place a gender quota that gave preference to men. And in that first year of co-education, women were just 13% of the student body. You know, as one of them wrote, when I raised my hand to speak in class, the guys turned to stare as if the furniture itself had offered an opinion. And so in addition to fighting the weight of this long men-only history at Yale, in addition to finding themselves at a place where of the 407 tenured faculty members, only three were women, they find themselves in this extreme minority with both the sort of spotlight that comes from that position and the invisibility.
2: Again, you're hearing Ann Perkins, author of Yale Needs Women. She's one of the finalists for the 2020 Connecticut Book Awards. Uh, So from that time, Ann, what was it like in terms of the university rewriting the rules to be more accepting and more um, accepting of both uh, not just women students in the classroom, but women faculty?
3: You know, one of the things that's so remarkable to me is how these first young women of Yale, and most of them are just teenagers when they arrive, really change the nature of this longstanding American institution within the first four years. They start the first women's sports teams. They coined for the very first time the phrase sexual harassment, Mm -hmm. thus starting the public fight against that. They uh, organize for the very first time a conference on the black woman where Maya Angelou, Gwendolyn Brooks, and Shirley Ann Bois are speakers. They fight uh, and press the Yale administration to include women in the curriculum, to include women professors. They open uh, what is now one of the uh, oldest women's centers in the country. They fight against and to make sure that when there are protests at Yale, they remain nonviolent. And all of this they do on top of outperforming the men academically every semester for the first four years of co-education at Yale.
2: <laughs> Go women. <laughs> you said earlier, <laughs> Ann Perkins, that you wanted to write a book for your daughter. Has she been able to read this? And what's been the response? This book's been out for, I think, about a year now.
3: It has been. She's read it and so have my two (laughs) sons. And (laughs) uh, one of the things I enjoy most when I speak about this is connecting with younger students or um, college students. I've even met recent Yale graduates who didn't know that Yale wasn't always co-ed. And so I think for many of them, the understanding that this is really a recent thing, the inclusion of women in these prestigious spaces in our country, Helps explain a lot about why we're still not there yet in terms of equity for women and also for people of color who, um, you know, black students were a rarity at Yale 50 years ago as well. Mm.
2: Again, Ann Perkins wrote, Yale Needs Women, How the First Group of Girls Rewrote the Rules of an Ivy League Giant, one of the nonfiction finalists for the Connecticut, 2020 Connecticut Book Awards. And thank you for talking with us. We really appreciated hearing from you today. Thanks so
3: much, Lucy. Take
2: care. Also with us here on Zoom is Lisa Comstock, who is director of the Connecticut Center for the Book. As we learn more about the finalists, you can join us to 888-720-9677. Tell us what you're reading, especially if it has ties to Connecticut. Is there a favorite Connecticut author you'd recommend? After the break, we'll hear more from the finalists, and we can't wait to hear from you too. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're hearing from some finalists for the 2020 Connecticut Book Awards. The awards recognize and honor authors and illustrators who've created the best books in or about our state in the past year. You can join us if you have a Connecticut author that you'd like to recommend or you wanted to share some of the books that you've enjoyed this year. Kathy tweeted uh, she enjoyed Disability Visibility, the anthology edited by Alice Wong, Ghosts of the Tsunami. She Has Her Mother's Laugh, Blood in the Water, Dear Martin, and Kindred. Also, she's so grateful for the Newington Library. Uh, Kathy, thank you for sharing that. Uh, With us on Zoom is Lisa Comstock, director at the Connecticut Center for the book. Uh, Lisa, you were telling us about the origin of the awards, and we heard from Ann Perkins earlier. Tell us about some of the fiction finalists.
0: Well, we've got an interesting collection of fiction finalists. There's um, three. Uh, this year that were selected. Um, one is called by Ocean young called On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous and it is a it's a gorgeous novel. Uh, there is the seven or eight deaths of Stella Fortuna and there is by uh, by Juliet Graham and Marco Raffala's How Fires End um, and all of them have places really within Connecticut. They are um, all of the, the authors were have lived in Connecticut at some point in time, but they also center in specific locations within Connecticut. Um, Hartford uh, for two of the novels, and uh, How Fire's End is based in Middletown, which resonates a lot with me because I live in Middletown, so I recognize all those places that are in that book. Um, so those are the three finalists in the fiction category this year. Mm.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about Marco's book, Set in Middletown?
0: Sure, Um, it is. um, It's a it's a history. It's a story of immigration in in many respects. It's a post World War uh, II era uh, family that immigrates to the United States from Italy, and it's about this life within this feud actually that has been brought over from Italy that has carried over to here, and it carries on into the modern era until. You know, at some point in time, it all has to end. Right. And so it's a it's a very, you know, it's a story of just sort of getting caught up in that those things you can't let go. Mm.
2: Uh, We'll have, again, a link on our website, wmprorg slash where we live to all of the finalists for the Connecticut Book Awards. Uh, A category that that really stood out to me is the Spirit of Connecticut Awards. Uh, Lisa, Mm -hmm. tell us about this category.
0: Well, again, it is. Um, it was a recent development. This is just last year, uh, and it was meant to honor our uh, executive director, Bruce Fraser. And it, um, every one of those books that are selected from it, they are kind of drawn from as the books are being read by the by the uh, judges for each category. They pull aside books that that fit that category specifically. That sort of provide this sense, place, and sort of. Uh, provide a real resonance with what Connecticut feels like and what it means. And that's a very hard thing to describe. I realize it's a little vague, but it's it um it sort of reflects the character of the state in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so each of the the we have one for poetry, nonfiction, uh fiction and young readers this time, which is last year we really only had you know, books selected from two categories. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, you know, each one is compelling in its
2: own way. Mm. We're going to be hearing from uh, one of the authors in this category who wrote Old Newgate Road. Before we heath- hear from Keith Scribner, tell us uh, briefly, Lisa, about uh, Ventures, the book Venture Smith and also Breach, which is a poetry series.
0: Oh, um, well, the Venture Smith book is intended for young readers. It's for, I believe it's between 10 and 13 years old of fifth and eighth grades, I guess, and tells the history of Venture Smith, who um, was a a person who was captured in Africa and an enslaved person in the Northeast, which people really don't think about having, you know, enslaved people in the Northeast, but we certainly did. And it tells that story about how he, um, how he, Bought his own freedom, really, and really became a uh, um, man of substance before he died. So mm-hmm. it was a and he told his own story uh, in an oral narrative.
2: Mm. And Breach, the poetry series?
0: Breach is it's, it's a it's a very interesting story to, about a um, uh, 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 manufacturing industry, really, a uh, a factory that has gone dormant and how the walls and and things without it can tell those uh, within it, I should say, can tell those stories. Inanimate things can still take the stories in and and reveal them to people. So it's a it's a really it's very clever.
2: We heard from Sarah M. on Twitter, who uh, wrote Absolutely Love the Things We Cannot Say by Kelly Rimmer and Home Before Dark by Riley Sager. She listened to both on audiobook and would highly recommend them to very different genres. And we want to hear from you, too. Tell us what you're reading, what you've enjoyed, especially over the last uh, six months during this pandemic. 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Joining us now on Zoom is, again, one of the finalists for the Spirit of Connecticut Award. Keith Scribner, who wrote *Old Newgate Road*. Keith, welcome to our show.
1: Thanks, Lucy. I'm really happy to be here.
2: I have to say, your book stood out to me because it's set in the tobacco fields of northern Connecticut, where I live in the town of Suffield. You actually grew up uh, nearby.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I grew up in East Granby, and uh, and the novel is set. It's uh, um, it's certainly the most autobiographical of my novels so far, um, and it's set in East Granby in. In an old colonial house that um, uh, that the family is restoring uh, and surrounded by surrounded by tobacco fields.
2: Mm. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about uh, the character of Cole Callahan. A little bit about the story, Keith.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Cole is um, Cole lives in Portland, Oregon now, and he's returning home for the first time uh, to East Granby for the first time in 30 years. Doesn't even intend to go to the house. Um, it's a place really of unspeakable tragedy in his childhood. And um, he's surprised to find that this old colonial is still there and it's still Um, half restored, Uh, it doesn't, nothing looks any different than it did um, as he remembers it 30 years ago. And then is also surprised to find that his father um, who has, who is out of prison is is living in the house. Um, His father is uh, suffering from Alzheimer's and Cole ends up spending the summer um, along with his son who comes out from Portland, um, uh, uh, taking care of his father.
2: You said semi-autobiographical. You're someone who grew up again in East Granby. You now are uh, living in Oregon. Uh, So tell me more about the the process that you went through writing this book.
1: Well, lots of it is memory, of course. Um, And then I made lots of trips back. And I went um, in in Suffield. In fact, I went, I visited a a, uh, connecticut shade tobacco farm there and some, somehow i got connected with my uncle uh, to the to the farm manager there and i was able to spend a day um, working under the nets picking tobacco spending time in the sheds and um and just asking lots and lots of questions smelling it if you've been in i mean of course you have in suffield right you know this the 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 beautiful smell of the tobacco as you drive by that, especially in the summer. Um, And then going into the sheds where, um, where the leaves are drying and where they're firing the leaves. And there's almost, there's a kind of sacred, they have um, burners going in the sheds to get the temperature and the humidity. at just the right, um, uh, just the right point. And, and it's very, it's, it's quiet and sacred and, it smells good, <laughs> it's beautiful, and uh, you get the sense of the value, right? There there might be a half a million dollars worth of leaves in that shed. And so to, to be able to, um, uh, that's the kind of thing I think that memory and book research uh, wasn't would not have been able to give me. Mm-hmm. And so days like that back in Connecticut were really useful. Um, I was just also in touch with just trying to remember things, in touch with people. I still have uh, family in Connecticut, so I do go back occasionally. But the research for this book was um, uh, was was really immersive, and I think in a in a sensual way, and uh, uh, and in part two because I wanted to. Most people don't know that they um, that we uh, grow tobacco in Connecticut, mm-hmm. and um, I. I wanted to uh, I wanted to get on the page um, the beauty of the beauty of these tobacco farms. Yeah, there um, aren't
2: that many farms left, but again, as you're driving through northern Connecticut, seeing those long barns, the slats open with the the big shade tobacco leaves drying, uh, it definitely uh, is a beautiful sight when you see all those farms still in existence, Keith.
1: Yeah. And there, right. There were, um, at its height, there were over 50,000 acres of shade tobacco. Now there's, uh, there's less than 2000 acres. Um, and the sheds are being raised all the time. Those, um, uh, most recently those, that big collection of beautiful shades near Bradley airport on Kennedy road, um, were all raised to just, just, uh, summer of 2019, I think. And, um, Uh, so it is, it is, yes, it's going, it's, I think we're seeing the last of it. I suppose there'll still be a kind of little boutique industry in Connecticut. It is the, they are the best in the world. These, uh, uh, Connecticut shade wrappers, it's the wrapper for the cigar. Um, uh, they are the best in the world by most, by most accounts. So I'm sure there'll still be some, but, um, but for various reasons that, um, that, that People aren't smoking cigars as much anymore. And um, and also uh, f- because the land is being developed, mm-hmm. um, there's the, the tobacco farms are being pushed out more and more.
2: I certainly sense uh, nostalgia as I talk with you, uh, Keith Scribner, again, having grown up in this area and now living in Oregon. We're talking about his book, Old Newgate Road. It's one of the 2020 uh, finalists for the Connecticut Sp- Spirit of Connecticut Awards through the Connecticut Center for the Book. Uh, one of the themes uh, in your book is uh, redemption and generational trauma. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Well, I, I, I guess I'm, um, well, let, let me just, to, to your earlier point, I would just say I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that the Spirit of Connecticut Award is the award I'm nominated for, because I, I did, out here in Oregon, <laughs> Connecticut's a long way from Oregon, yeah. and, um, and I did want a kind of homage to Connecticut, and, um, and being a finalist for this award makes me feel like I, um, uh, like I succeeded at that um the so redemption and um and I think that redemption and and uh, forgiveness um uh, the way trauma is passed on um, between generations is all stuff that I was really interested in exploring in the novel um, uh, having old Old Newgate prison, of course, mm-hmm. but that's Newgate prison is in in uh, East Granby. Um, and having um, that in there too, which is a place, right? It's, a, it's sort of a very dark, dark, ugly um, uh, period of, I, I guess, our past of American history. The, kind of the um the the conditions there were really, really, really deplorable. Um, and even, even compared to other prisons um, at the time. Um, so, so I was interested in the novel in b- being able to explore all of those things and, um, and tobacco um, ended up being, I think I, you know, I didn't know this when I set off writing the book, but to, tobacco in Connecticut ended up being a really great metaphor for that because um, to, to uh, tobacco hasn't changed at all. The, the way it's the way it's grown, the machines that are used, the techn- There's no technological advances in in growing shade tobacco in Connecticut. So all of that, um, all of that ended up being a really beautiful metaphor, I think, for, for how we carry the, our pasts into the present. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that wonderful Faulkner line: um, uh, "The past is never dead; it's not even past." And I feel that way when I, when I visit these tobacco fields and feel that um, how nothing, uh, the, the past is so alive in, um, in these fields. And I think that's what uh, my characters are facing and especially Cole is how, um, how to forgive and how to be um, redeemed, how to allow his, um, how to, um, uh, reconnect with with his family and his past, and and accept his family and his past. And for him, um, I think this is a rather roundabout answer to your question. Mm-hmm. But for him, ultimately, it comes down to forgiving his father, mm-hmm. and that forgiveness is what allows um, for his own redemption, and and I think redemption for his own for, for with his wife and his son. Mm-hmm.
2: Keith Scribner, again, is author of Old Newgate Road. Uh, Keith, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, to learn about uh, some of your uh, memories of uh, northern Connecticut. Stay safe in Oregon.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Again, with us on Zoom today on Where We Live also is Lisa Comstock, director at the the Connecticut Center for the book. We're going to continue talking about some of the finalists for the 2020 Connecticut Book Awards. Now, if you love memoirs, right after the break, we're going to talk with the finalist about her memoir. And we want to hear from you too, 888-720-9677. Or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What books are you reading? Today we focus on Connecticut authors uh, who've written in or about our state. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You can join us 888-720-9677. Again, on Zoom with us is Lisa Comstock, director at the Connecticut Center for the book as we talk about the finalists for the 2020 Connecticut Book Awards. And also joining us now on Zoom is Alyssa Altman, author of the memoir Motherland. She's an award winning author of literary memoir essay and food narrative and she lives in southwest connecticut
4: Alyssa, welcome to our show thank you so much for having me lucy it's it's a pleasure
2: um people can really be drawn in to motherland when we think about our relationship with our parents especially um a mother-daughter relationship which at at times can be both loving and at times maddening Uh, so tell me uh, why you decided to write motherland
4: well, you know, there's there's um, there's a, that a great one, uh, James Baldwin quote that I'm sure I'll, I will mangle. Uh, that um, you know, every writer has uh, one story uh, that they tell and tell again until it it gets larger, it gets smaller, and it's always sort of at the core of everything uh, everything that we that we write. And Motherland was very much that story for me. And Motherland is my is my third book. And my my mother has been um, sort of a primary character in uh, in every everything that I've written. And in two thousand and sixteen, I found myself um, actually two thousand fifteen. I found myself writing a year long column for the Washington Post called "Feeding My Mother," which started out really as a um, a a, um, a monthly column about uh, just that how one goes about feeding. Um a senior parent who doesn't like food and who doesn't like to eat and um, and by the end of the year um I I realized that I was really writing about nurturing and sustenance in um, non-culinary Ways non-culinary forms and so once again um, our story had had kind of bubbled to the surface and my mother and I have had a um, a, a historically very complicated, um, entangled, enmeshed, difficult, difficult relationship. And um, I'm her um, only child and um, her daughter. And I knew that at a certain point, um, I was going to be faced with um, questions of moral obligation. Mm -hmm. Um, Would I be called? Back to her side to care for her as she got older, or would I not? Mm. And that was it. That was at the core.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So she had an accident, and you became her primary caregiver. You said you were the only child. What was that like at first, Alyssa? And how did you balance uh, the the need to care for her with your life and your career?
4: Well, it was um, it was very complicated, and I I think that. Um, You know, we are currently faced in this country, um, you know, according to AARP, there's something like 43 million people in the United States who are currently uh, caregiving um, senior parents. And most of those caregivers are women and most of the parents are mothers um, because women um, tend to live longer than men. Um, For me, I I think that, you know, there was the initial... Um, shock um, and um, of my mother's, um, surrounding my mother's accident. My mother lives uh, in New York City. She is um, still in fairly independent. I live in in, um, Newtown and um, it was going to, I knew it was going to be a situation where I was going to have to um, cope with the geographical um, issues. There were financial issues um, that were very, uh, very difficult um, to to um, uh, navigate, um, and then there was the 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 pure, um, you know, the 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 core of the story, which was, you know, can I go back to this person's side, who was at the center of uh, the trauma that I experienced um, and have lived with um, emotional trauma over the years, and um, and that was something that, you know, in the writing, um, of it, um, I was living with it and writing it daily at at the same time. And writing memoir from the center of the story, while the story is unfolding, um, comes with a lot of, um, complication, craft complication. Um, and I had to sort of step back and, and and watch the story unfold, and basically create myself as character in the story. Um, and it was uh, it was really an extraordinary um, journey, I think, for both of us. Mm.
2: You're hearing Alyssa Altman again here on Where We Live. Uh, she's one of the finalists for the Connecticut 2020 Connecticut Book Awards. She wrote Motherland, a memoir of love, loathing, and longing. Uh, Alyssa, would you say that writing this was also a, a form of therapy for you as you thought, think about your relationship uh, with your mother from the time that you were little and now as her primary caregiver?
4: Yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure that I would. That I would say it was. It was therapy. I think that, um, you know, memoirists write to understand. Um, we write to make meaning. Um, as as the wonderful, um, the wonderful memoirist and writer Danny Shapiro um, often says, we memoirists write to make meaning of. Um, of a situation, and and um, you know the difference between auto, autobiography and memoir is that autobiography is generally a great expanse of time, and memoir is um, a sliver of time, and um, and and which is why memoirists can write more than one <laughs> can write more than one memoir, and I think that uh, for me the thing that happened that I did not expect to happen. Um, was a much greater understanding of my mother and my mother's illnesses, my mother's mental illnesses, um, and how she got to that place. And my responses over the years to her mental illness. And and I did learn, um, you know, it's one thing to say it and another thing to live it, um, that um, mental illness is, um, is not, um, you know, it's, it's not a, a, um, something to be morally judged. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's an illness. And, um, when you see that on paper, of course you understand it, but to, but to actually live that and realize that and feel it and metabolize it is something different. And that is what happened to me. Um, as a result of, of of writing this, and it was an extraordinary journey.
2: This is your third memoir, Alyssa.
4: Yes, that's correct.
2: And when was your mother able to read Motherland, and what was her reaction?
4: Yes, she <laughs> she was, and I I, am, I held my breath for <laughs> um, a very long time, um, and I you know I didn't know how she was going to respond to it. She knew from the outset that I was going to be writing a book about us. Um, And she, my mother um, suffers from um, clinically diagnosed narcissistic personality disorder. And she's a former television singer. She, um, she's a former model. She's quite uh, beautiful, quite eccentric. And when I gave her the book, um, not really knowing how she was going to respond, she called me and said, you know, I've read it and it is 99% accurate. So, uh, which was an enormous, um, you know, an enormous surprise to me that she would say that because people who suffer from NPD generally are incapable of seeing, um, their story, uh, through the eyes of someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a great, um, it was a great gift to me, um, when she said that, um, I breathed and wept, um, you know, massive uh, tears of relief. Um, and I think that the most important thing was that she was able to see the love in it. Um, I, you know, as I always say, one does not spend 18 months, uh, you know, at their desk writing a story about someone um, with whom they don't share um, a profound connection and love. Um, and And that was very much the case for us.
2: How would you describe your relationship today with her,
4: Lisa? Um It's still complicated. I think that you know, um, old habits die very hard, and they run very deep. Um, our our um, our ruts are very uh, very deep. Um, but I I I understand her um, far better now than I did at the beginning of the telling, um, at the beginning of, of the writing. And with that, um, I think certainly for me comes more, um, comes more patience, um, comes more, um, acceptance of who she is and also who she is not and who I am not, um, and certainly healing. And it gives a whole new, uh, meaning to the word, um, nurturing, um, and, uh, you know, with, with the, um, onset of, um, COVID, uh, this past spring, we brought my mother to Connecticut to live with us for 12 weeks, um, in our, in our little ranch house in Newtown. And, um, it was the first time we, uh, had lived together in, you know, over 35 years, I want to say. And, um, and, and so the paperback is actually just out now. and, And I've rewritten, Um, I've I've actually added a a new end note to it um, reflecting that and um, I don't know that we would have been able to do that um, and live together in such close quarters for such an extended period of time had I not written the book Mm. um, and had I not unraveled our story.
2: Alyssa, I understand that you teach the craft of memoir in, in P-town. Uh, for our listeners who are interested in writing about uh, their relationships with particular family members, I mean, how do you? How would you recommend they begin?
4: Um, I think um, you know it's it's different for everyone, and and I tend to be very compelled by um, by the visual and visual memory, and so I I. You physically sit down with with my you know boxes and boxes of photos and and i and I go through them and and usually at some point there's something that that jumps out at me um, and that's pract- from a practical standpoint that usually uh, lights the uh, the fire for me. What I tell my students um, is to listen and to Slow down their telling of them of their stories to themselves, and to to listen to the people around them, and to listen to family story, um, and to um, and certainly to read as much as possible. You I know, mean, there's a you know a great belief that one should not write, one should not read the um, you know the the genre in which they're writing, and I, I don't believe that's true. I, I think that um, the more one surrounds themselves with, um, with really, you know, beautifully written memoir, um, one is compelled to, um, to, to sit down and, and write, and write it themselves.
2: We just have a few minutes left. Uh, Alyssa Altman, again, author of Motherland. Are there particular memoirs you'd recommend we read?
4: Um, you know, I, I certainly, I think, um, you know, Danny Shapiro, who's a, you know, another wonderful Connecticut author, uh, um, her, her book Inheritance, which, uh, came out last year, um, is just an extraordinary journey of, uh, discovery and surprise and, um, and, and it's, it's just a, just a beautifully crafted, um, piece of writing and, um, you know, I, so I would, I would, I, I would put her at the top of our list. Um, and, um, you know, Mary Carr's The Liar's Club is, is something that I've always uh, you know, a book that I've, I've always loved. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's a, a, a wealth <laughs> of beautiful memoir out there.
2: Well, Lisa Altman, we thank you for talking with us about your book, Motherland, and congratulations on your nomination for a Connecticut Book Award.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we
2: also heard from a listener who tweeted, we love Connecticut author Kristen Tetsey's novel, The Age of the Child, which is based in Connecticut and which deals with issues of relevance to women and children and anyone else impacted by reproductive rights today. Uh, Lisa Comstock, I want to go back to you with just a, a couple of minutes left to, to the show. Again, you're director of the Connecticut. Connecticut center for the book. Um, We were only able to profile three um, finalists uh, today, at least to speak with them. There's so many more uh, finalists uh, that you'll be announcing the winners again, October 15th, but um, just with the closing remarks for the show, uh, some other uh, selections or people that you're reading that you want to share, Lisa.
0: Oh gosh. Um, Of course, I've read most of the books that uh, were submitted and certainly the ones that were uh, timeless. I've read most of them, I should Mm -hmm. say. Um, But I am reading also or just recently read a book called Sea Wife by uh, Amity Gage. And she is happens to be a Connecticut based author. Uh, Her book just came out in 2020. And it is just one of those. It it, it is a a, a told from the point of view of um, she and her husband um who take a sea voyage um they decide they're just going to sail around the world or sail around this uh, for a period of time like 6 months or something like that that they just sort of throw in throw in uh, the talents sort of decide they're going to have this life and it's just a very compelling story because it's told from the point of view of the captain's log who is her husband's writing the captain's log and and herself who's writing her own story after they return and uh it's just a very it's Very compelling. Um, and I'm reading just read creatures by Chrissy Van Meter. That's um another uh a story about the sea in some respects, and then uh the deep by Amakatsu, which is another one about the sea. I've just gotten a, a thing into the about the <laughs> sea, right? <laughs> oh, now, I'm just reading a lot of books that, that center around water, um, mm. uh, not sure why. Um and uh Julie Andrews autobiography, Home Work, which I uh, am reading right now. Mm.
2: Well, I thank you, Lisa Comstock, for giving us more recommendations. And again, for our listeners who want to watch this virtual event, the winners of the Connecticut Book Awards being announced October 15th, where can they go, Lisa?
0: They can visit our website, ctcenterforthebook.org and uh, sign up there, register there, We'll be uh, it's sort of, again, a work in progress, so we will be forwarding to folks who do register, we're forwarding um, a link a couple of days before the event itself, but at least it gets you in the queue, and uh, we can send out additional information about the event as it's coming up, as more details sort of uh, crystallize. Well, Lisa Comstock, again, thank you for joining us today,
2: giving us a lot of good recommendations. We love reading here on Where We Live. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, we thank you for listening and you can listen to Where We Live anytime. Just download the show on your favorite podcast app.